a Podcast One production. Hello, my name is Gary Megan and this is A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the unknown stories behind the food that we all love. Salvatore Malatesta is a true food entrepreneur in every sense of the word. He spent a lifetime building cafes and restaurants, learning his craft, honing his skills and creating an empire while he was at it. Most people know him as the founder of St Ali in Melbourne. Yeah, that great coffee place. But he's done so much more than that. And in our chat, I learned so much more about him. How he grew up poor, where his entrepreneurial spirit came from, and how to bring yourself back when you hit rock bottom. This man has done it all. Salvatore Malatesta. Should we talk about coffee? Please. Because when I think about you, I think about the changing face of coffee, how we think about coffee and also cafes yeah. and that, that Melbourne culture that we're very proud of. And you're, you have been uh, instrumental in driving that. How did, how did that happen? Thank you. Gary, I don't know if you remember, but we, we actually met once before. And before you get nervous, it was at oh, the, yeah, it was it was, was at, it? it was at the cafe. Um, and you were having breakfast there, I think, with your with your family, and it may have been even ten years ago. Right. So um, the San Ali is almost fifteen years old. Yep. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the well, I think probably because of you guys actually, but the the food and culture in Melbourne is you know is as good as anywhere in the oh, world. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. And I think in that time, the idea of what was a cafe um, and to where we are now has changed. You know, I think cafes are really just restaurants serving breakfast and lunch rather than something else. And I remember, um, you know, I, thank you for saying instrumental because I think in some ways not only did we pioneer the specialty coffee movement or the third wave movement as as it was then known, um, which was essentially a counterculture, um, anti-establishment, anti-large commercial sort of movement. And it had all the um, same sort of um, trimmings that you might find at a surf rally in the 70s or something. There was a strong sort of anti-establishment feeling. Mm. But in, in, in same at the same time, we also sort of brought cafe food, I think, um, to another level. And, and the GFC was actually excellent for us because people who stopped spending at night started spending during the day. So you could have civige, or however you pronounce mm. it, for brekkie, um, and, you know, sell lots of it. Yeah. Um, so that was good. And, and where, where did the anti-establishment come from, do you think? Because I, I think when you rewind the clock, it was so close because we're very Americanized in, in Australia, whether we like to admit it or not. And we were so close to going down the rabbit hole of, you know, 3,000 Starbucks. Yeah, um, well, we should talk about All them, over town. Cause, so Because they've done some... Uh, with their new projects, they've done some interesting it's work. It's changed, hasn't it? And they've sort well, of had to. Well, they've sort of responded to all our learnings, I guess. But they, um, let's say that the what I mean by that is the early days, um, and am I, am I allowed to mention brands on this? Yeah, I don't yeah. see why not, yeah. Um, people in Melbourne would talk about, so what coffee do you drink? Yeah. And people would say, oh, I drink Genovese or I drink Lavazza. Or, and I remember asking the question, no, I meant what coffee do you drink? Yeah. Um, not what brand do you drink? And people are like, oh, coffee. Uh, I drink uh, cappuccino or long black or latte. I'm like, no, no. I mean, what coffee do you drink? And people, what do you mean? I'm like, where's the coffee come from? I'm like, oh, I fucking know. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I was very keen on pushing the single origin, single estate, micro lot message. And so I remember, I think I did a, I was on the on post kitchen or something and I was talking about the micro coffee revolution um, and one, you know, one bean at a time. And that was 
what I mean by the anti-establishment because all the larger brands just it was Lavazza Gold or whatever, yeah. um, and it wasn't you know Kenyan or Costa Rican, and um, so that sort of um, you know take paddock to plate or cup or, or you know farm to cup or that sort of provenance which is you know now common lexicon. Um, we we pioneered that, so we would say you know this coffee's um, Costa Rican. It's from a farm called Herbazoo. The two brothers are called Juan and Carlo. Um, it's on micro lot 17. It's at 1,700 metres. It was harvested in October. And we started talking about coffee in much the same way people talked about wine. And in fact, so much so that I um, did become an ear intent for a couple of people and I did two things. One thing we did, which I was very proud of, was I was number one on the 24 most pretentious things ever on BuzzFeed. And I think Sting was three. Um, and I also had a phone call from um, from Triple M, <laughs> Eddie Maguire, who uh, wanted to talk about why I was charging $50 for a cup of coffee for this Panama Geisha. And I remember saying to him on air that um, I asked him whether he drank uh, uh, local or French bubbles, and he said champagne, of course. And so I, you know, inverted the wanker commentary um, about, well, we drink yeah. great coffee. And, and, it's, and for us, it's about, you know, single origin, single state micro lots and celebrating uh, those characteristics of the of the soil. Yeah. I remember a little cafe on Collins Street was the first cafe to, or one of the first cafes to put Illy coffee. Right. And everybody went, oh, that's fancy. And it got mobbed. And at the time it was about 50 bucks a kilo. Yeah. Because I remember well, it. Yeah, I think they... it was about 92 or 93. That's how far, yeah. sorry, my brain just went back there because you, you mentioned brands like yeah. Genovese. And people would put this Italian coffee on a pedestal and go, but it's all the way from Italy. Yep. And maybe it was that part of being sophisticated and part of being not, you know, a daggy Australian that they liked. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because a couple of uh, colleagues or rivals uh, early days made um, <clears throat> disparaging commentary about um, Italian coffee. And I, I, I never did because, um, well, I'm Italian, but also um, <laughs> I didn't because, I mean, coffee's a you know a drug of dependence, and it's and it's connected so strongly into cultures. So how people drink their coffees, uh, uh, co uh, uh, you know, it's very idiosyncratic and culture driven. Um, because uh, it, but, it, but it evokes memories. It evokes I'm, memories. Sure, I'm sure you've got an example of that when you were. I mean, can you think of one when you were little and you, uh, that smell of coffee is? Well, actually, before we walked into the studio, I was talking to one of your colleagues about um, what was an appropriate age to, to drink wine, and I said, "Well, it's strange because wine was always around." And it was never a taboo in my household. And so I think I may have been 12 when I had my first glass of wine with my father. And I'd done the same thing with my children. I think she was 15, not 12, but it wasn't a big deal. And with coffee, I remember, you know, teaspoons of coffee being put into my breakfast cereal um, by my mum. And, and she thought it was a great thing. And we all thought it was a great thing. So that's what I mean. That, But when, when I drink a cup of coffee... Um, depending on the coffee, it invokes memories and it transports me immediately to a different time. So, you know, I've been transported back to farms in, you know, in Honduras, Costa Rica, but by the same token, when I drink a coffee, like an Illy coffee, um, through an espresso, I'm transported to Italy and the smell of tobacco and the noise of chatter and sugar in a cup and that kind of thing. So when, when back then people made commentary, I, I withdrew from commentary about that, but I do... And, and and brands like Illy, I mean Illy is a phenomenal coffee company. Apart from the fact that, from a you know business business perspective, it's incredible. Like you know, it's um, in the billions. Uh, the technology they developed and the, and the way they sourced and roast coffee for the time was incredible. When we came along, 
what we well, what we did was just challenge the idea of blends and brands. And there was, and I think I think there still is a desire for provenance. Um, and so when when you drink, well, well, not now so much because we've been around fifteen years. But in the early days, sometimes people that were used to sort of coffee in the espresso Italian sense would find our coffee too acidic or too bright or too flowery. Or too, flowery is in flowers, not um, flower. Um, or um, you know, so when we talked about papaya and lemon juice, I'd have friends of mine saying, "Well, I don't fucking want a fruit juice. I want a, I want a coffee." You know that kind of thing. So now we can have that conversation um, and we can taste coffees in different brewing methods from different origins and appreciate those subtleties. But that Italian style of, you know, um, thick crema espresso is still a thing. And and so if you think of it as wine, some people love naturals. Others do not venture down those mm. paths. I, I think the minimalist intervention movement is interesting. It can be good. It can also be terrible. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that there is the answer. I just think the work that we did was that. Does that, has that answered the yeah, counterpoint? Yeah, no, I, I, I love it. I'm, we're going deep. No, it's great. I love it. So everybody knows you as the, the coffee king around um, Melbourne, but are you from Melbourne? Were you born in Melbourne? Yeah, I, I, I was. So um, my story in some ways is, you know, um, a cliche of Italian migrant families, and but in other ways um, it's not. So I don't know how far back you want to go, Gary, but I, I was – you know, uh, fortunate that a few things went my way. And the first thing that went my way, I mean, my parents are um, Italian, Southern Italy, um, from a region called Molise in, in between, uh, sort of in between Rome and Naples, I guess. And they you know, did the suitcase thing and we lived 12 people in two bedrooms. So when did they come out to 66. Australia? 66. So there was literally 12 people living in a two-bedroom home. So that's, and so which part of Melbourne did they gravitate Oakley, towards the... Which is... Uh, which is sort of was that wasn't traditionally Italian, the Greek, Greek was it? traditionally Greek, Greek yeah. yeah. So, and um, and in that process, and, and I remember this speech that Robert Benini gave um, when he got an Oscar or whatever uh, award for Life Is Beautiful, and he said, "My parents gave me the uh, biggest gift of all; they gave me poverty." Um, and so that was what I was seeing as a kid. And I just remember thinking, this is shit, you know, like there's going to be a better way, mm. um, out of this. But, mm, and how old was that? Just oh, that well, Can you the, the acknowledgement, yeah, probably six or seven. Right. Yeah. You know, was it like, there was, and what the, were you seeing around you? You know, what well, you, 12 what, of us in two bedrooms. And what, and what did that look like? Explain. Uh, how did it feel? No, yeah. no personal space. Right. And also, and were you see, seeing people, sorry to dig into that, uh, bit, but were you seeing people having a different life? Is that why? Because often when you're in it and there's nothing any different, then it's not shit because that's your reality. Um, you know, look, I'll answer that in two ways, but I'll fast forward to the the moment that I remember thinking we must be really poor. And I think I must have been 12 or 13 because I saw my dad's paycheck and I think it was something like $363 or something like that. And I was earning that waitering with tips, but I was 13. Um, and so I remember thinking, well, that's not very much. Um, so that was the sort of crystallizing moment. And what did your dad do? Factory, just factory hands right. and, and farm hands. Okay. Um, uh, so at 15, um, my older brother, who was um, classically trained, um, you know, uh, silver chef, whatever they, waiters, mm. I guess, um, he uh, needed an impetus to open a family restaurant. Um, or to do his own thing. And we ended up opening a pizza joint and it went really well and, you know, 
Was that you and your brother or the whole family? It was my the... brother and I. And yeah. mom, I mean, it was a whole family. It was as in uh, the, I guess, the ultimate owners were my brother and I. But it seems kind of silly because I was a child. I was 15 and I was still year nine or something. But it, that's how it was. Um, I left the family business at like 19, backpacked for a couple of years, got back, went to Melbourne Uni. And this is this was the gift that I was given. I mean, some of it was, you know, hard work and some of it was just just lucky, I guess. But yeah. um, my my parents would have loved for me to be a doctor, lawyer, or, or priest. Um, and uh, and good I, Italian, good yeah. Italian and I, and I, like I, I chose law, right? So I yeah. went to the University of Melbourne, became a lawyer. That in itself, back then, maybe less so these days, was a privileged position to have. Mm-hmm. And and then I realised. And then a whole new world opened up to me. But when I was at the University of Melbourne, we used to go off campus and go to Ligon Street to eat at places like Tiamo because the food on campus was horrendous. And it was, you know, frozen dim sims and PET, 600 milliliter soft, soft drinks and stuff, right? So I opened my first venue when I was a third year arts law student and the venue was called Caffeine. And the logo was like a pill and it was consciously, deliberately played techno and it hit a mark. And I went from house sharing um, in Park Street, Brunswick, and there was seven of us in that house in 12 months, moving from there to Rockman's Regency Hotel, which is now the Marriott. Yeah. Uh, and When was this, by the way? Is this in the so 90s? Well, I mean, if you're playing techno and... Well, I'm, 40, I'm 47, so I would have 21, something like that. Uh, yeah, I guess so. 96 or something like that. Yeah, and anyway, that business went really, really well. Um, and uh, and then by the time I graduated from law school and started my articles, a law firm called Gaydens, I had fifteen venues on university sites, and I had fallen into this segment that was tertiary, um, not intentionally. It was just because I was the end user, and that's where I started. And then other universities said, "We love what you're doing. Can you come and do it here? Can we come and do it here?" I was like, "Yeah, sure." And so. Um, when I resigned from um, being a lawyer because I was miserable, um, mainly the timesheets, <laughs> to be honest, I do miss some of the intellectual robustness and some of the you know verbose uh, discussions. But um, I, I didn't miss the you know dictaphones and timesheets and stuff. I came home and my mother cried, and so then I had to throw myself into hospital in a proper yeah. way. And I can't remember now; it goes a bit, it goes a bit blurry. But I don't know whether I was thirty-one or thirty-three or something like that. But I had a child. And when I had the child, I sold out of everything that I had and I did okay. Um, and I took a year off and I thought I was you know, pretty bloody lucky and all that kind of jazz. But then I got pretty bored pretty quickly and got back into it. And that's where Sonali appeared. Yeah. Um, and then uh, this time around, rather than building something that I um, will get frustrated with and then because what happens when you work for yourself, I'm sure you know, is you can't really resign. So it's either you're in or you're out. I um, consciously build a business where we have a board and we have a CEO and a CFO and all that kind of crap. And so I'm you know, doing the stuff that I love doing, which is a creative think tank stuff. Well, I'm, I'm curious to know why your mum burst into tears when seemingly, I mean, I think if I'd done that when I was at college, my mum would be going, what? You know, that's entrepreneurial. You've got 15 outlets in so, various unis and, and tertiary education. I mean, surely she would be thrilled. So even today, my older relatives, so the old school, the ones in the 70s and 80s, refer to me by title. So, you know, Senor Avocado. So it's a big deal, right? Like right. it's like if you're a notaio in Italy, it's a big deal. I don't know if it's still a big deal today, but certainly for the old community it is. And that was like being called father, you know, or right. 
or doctor or something. And then um, there's something about, I don't know, uh, being a hospitality operator or, or merchant that isn't quite as elegant and refined. And it's probably true in some ways, I guess, for that period for those people. Um, and, you know, money wasn't a driver for my mother, um, you know, honour and family and respect. So, I mean, if I made $1 or $100 million, it wouldn't have made a difference yeah. provided I was a good person and did the right things. Yeah. So, you know, and having community standing, you know, that was right. important. So uh, I'm also <clears throat> probably getting a bit personal here, but I'm also divorced and I kept that from my mum for three years because um, <laughs> my father had passed and I thought, right. well, she might pass as well. Why would I? Break her little heart, yeah, and then she didn't pass. So I had to at some point tell you had her to fess up. The charades were getting over the top. <laughs> My ex-wife would come to me, you know, yeah. family events and that kind of stuff. So yeah, right, keeping keeping the uh, the lie alive. That's that's hard work. It isn't was it? hard work. That's hard it was work. Hard work. But like, so I was kind of scared of her, more more scared of hurting her feelings. Really, I guess. Yeah, and and how did that turn out? Did it did it hurt her feelings? Was she okay? Is she uh, has she grown with you? Is she's since passed as well. She was. Um, no, she gave me a hard time about oh, it. Did she? Yeah, she gave me a hard time about it. I had three kids at the time, and you know, I, I think uh, if you can keep it together, you should. Families are important, um, and I don't, you know, I'm not an advocate for separation. So yeah. she, she, you know, she was annoyed, but she got over it eventually. And I think she entirely got over it because she reminded me of it quite often. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, compensated as best I could. So my three kids from the first marriage are very, very close to me, and you know, I kind of raised them from six, four and two. Yeah. Where do you think the, you know, going back to the fact that your dad was a, say, a factory worker and that they were immigrants into Australia, where do you, where do you think their biggest struggles were when they came? I mean, do you, you look back on that time and go, gee, they were brave. They were, you I, know, they I, were um, staunch. It was, I mean, it's a, it's a hell of a thing to just get on a boat and yeah. turn up. I, I, I don't, um, uh, I feel a bit sort of, um, I don't want to say artificial because I, because my older brother's 16 years older than me. There's nothing, in, no in between. Um, and so, and I don't look particularly Italian. I have a very Italian name. I didn't experience any kind of racism. You know, I, I mean, I, maybe, you know, maybe a couple, yeah. of, you know, you sort of. Got walk, a funny name. Yeah, maybe, but not really. But they did. And they um, experienced what I would call by today's standards, you know, criminal racism, you know, vilification. So um, my brother was um, a fighter and, um, and you know, he was being discriminated at school and being called names and, and he would listen to my father like like word for word and he came home one day and said to my father, you know, this is what's happening and my father had enough and said, well, given one mm. and he did and after that you know anytime someone would make a derogatory comment yeah i remember once they got one they got one yeah i remember mm. being at a drive-in cinema and i must have been i don't know young like six or seven and he would have been 20 or 21 and um, someone called us a bunch of wogs so he got out of the car and crowbarred the car and beat him up and that was standard um and so i didn't experience that but i suspect it must have been tough yeah mm. Do you remember any conversations in the family that they'd made the wrong decision by coming to Australia no, and Melbourne? No, Italy's, uh, I mean, it's still, unfortunately, today. It, was, a, it was a bad period, wasn't it's it? It's a bad period. And, and look, and it's still in a crisis. Now I just got back and I just, yeah, I feel sorry for that country. It's got so much going mm. for it, but uh, no one's in a good spot, yeah. I don't think. Where do you think your entrepreneurial spirit came growing up in, in, in that environment and that family? Was it the fact that you wanted to, to, to do something that made you parents proud was that the driver or was it something that was 
Look, I'm, were purely your own. Uh, uh, no, the the uh, you know guilt and insecurity of being an Italian migrant child um, helps in driving entrepreneurialism. But I actually think <laughs> for me, um, it was also um, especially after law school and seeing how um, some other people lived. It was uh, I, I kind of uh, thought no, I need to get I need to dig myself out of this shithole as mm. quickly as I can. So, um, and you know, in my school there were, um, it was a tough school and there were different paths people took and I, I took an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial one which was the right one. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. So that idea of coffee and the first cafe, caffeine, how did that come about? Why did you get, was that just purely because you go, you're at uni, you need oh, coffee? Oh, because was I, there, Were there espresso I, machines? Was it? Yeah, was so it, I was, I mean, I, I personally was spending, you know, probably the equivalent of 30% of my earning a week on coffee, right? So I um, mean, that was, you know, what we all talked about was going yeah. for coffee and needing coffee and wanting coffee. So it wasn't in any sense back then specialty at all. I mean, yeah. it was it was a drug of dependence, and um, the good things about a good thing about selling drugs of dependence is people were dependent on them. Mm. Um, so I thought as a as a as a business model, needed You're to keep work. spending the money. Um, it was espresso machines, but the focus back then, uh, embarrassingly, with the knowledge I have today, was more on crema and the sugar test and that kind of thing. Right. But we were making fifteen hundred copies a day in nineteen ninety six. Yeah. Um, but actually, now that I think about it, Gary, that was my second venue because my first venue, which strangely. Um, it was at Melbourne Uni as well, but it was called Plush Fish, and that's a that's a cool story because it was a sushi bar. And if you go back to 1996, yeah. I don't think there was – there may have been one mm. – I'm trying to throw myself back into 1996. I think there was one, bar. maybe one takeaway sushi concept and one restaurant, you know, yeah. Kenzan or something like that. I was like just that. about to say Kenzan. Yeah. Be the one that I remember. Still so, there. Yeah, that's right, and I still go. And still we, good, yeah. Yeah, and we – um, still the still same guy, by the way. Yeah. So we – um. We were selling two and a half thousand hand rolls a day um, in 1996. That was the first venue, and that's because I'd, I'd gone to Japan. Um, I taught this Japanese girl who was at Melbourne Uni um, Italian. She was studying Italian. I mentored her, and she invited me back to stay with her family. And, and we stayed with her family in Tokyo, and they were super wealthy and um, took me to excellent restaurants. So I was like, "Wow, this is delicious!" You know. And when I came back to Melbourne, I said, "We've got to open a sushi bar," and that's how it happened. But that was that was and that was before the coffee. That was before the coffee. Yeah. So you could have been sushi sushi instead of Saint Ali. Strangely, Susie Wong, sushi sushi, approached me after we opened uh, Plush Fish and said whether I'd uh, talk to her. About about it and I, I was no no man we're like we're so cool we do independent projects <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe i should have listened <laughs> i think you've done all right i love making this series and i hope that you love listening too if you do subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not we actually read those messages what we want to know is what you think about the show more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests we love hearing from you that's what i'm trying to say you can do that on apple podcasts podcast one australia or wherever you listen and if you're feeling like it maybe even recommend the show to a friend you never know they might find it as delicious as you do So was, was this a straight run of success from first business right up to present day? I mean... No, so I was lucky that the first five or six venues that I opened just smashed it. And by smashed it, I mean, they were just really, really busy and we'd hit a nerve and they were just, you know, superbly well. My probably seventh venue, 
Um, and ironically, probably, and maybe less ironic than I'd like to think, that was the one we spent the most money on um, and got, you know. So changed the business model. Yeah, we got some fancy architects, we got mm-hmm. a fancy build. And we spent a big end of town. Big end of town. Um, <laughs> and that one was a fucking disaster. Um, you know, and so we had to sell that one. And I, having, remember I studied law, so having uh, having at least a tax strategy in mind, uh, I used the capital loss against a capital gain. So I tried to sort of, you know, neutralize what was otherwise a fairly horrible situation. But then, so I've had probably, I don't know, a handful of learnings, commercial learnings um, that uh, happened early. So they put me in good good position to navigate what I think is uh, quite, um, quite, I think if you can survive in hospitality, you can probably survive in most businesses because it's mm. quite a hard business to make work. Um, but I, if your question's about my personal failings um, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and <laughs> then there's been plenty of those, yeah. um, I... I think I got, I think Gary, to be honest, there was a time in my life when I um, probably partied more than I did anything else. Uh, And standing here today in front of you in a good spot, it's easy to say, and no regrets, Um, but it could have gone. But you might not have made it. I may not have made it, yeah. Um, And I've been lucky to, you know, remarry someone I love and have another child and it's all worked out well. But I, you know, the, the thing about, and I'm by comparison it pales, but just to, to come out of Compton and then make a lot of money really young and, and put that kind of money into young hands, it's only going to lead to, you know, a couple of things. And I do remember, um, you know, buying drinks for a lot of people for a lot of nights in a row and, and all the things that come with partying. So it was a, it was a, a good time and, I, uh, and I'm glad that it was a short good time. What was the moment that it changed? I divor- oh, describe the worst divorce because oh, that's where it was. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was just about to say we can just- divorce is not great. Yeah. I, I um look, I and that was all around the same time. So you would have had what? So you had got you? Are we talking about having young children and yeah. and everything's going well and you know you're feeling like the kingpin and spending money and having a good time and so so in you know I guess you're from Sydney, right? So the no Melbourne. Are you Melbourne? Melbourne. Yeah, I arrived in Melbourne in '91. Okay, not was- a poor Italian immigrant, just an ignorant. British immigrant. <laughs> okay, so so what what does what does every you know you know what does every wog boy who makes money do? What do they go and buy a house, Gary? I don't know. Yeah, Turak or Brighton? That's you know. Is that what they do? Yeah, that's what you do if you you know if you if you from the if you're from. I the, thought if you're from the heartland, you'd at least stay for a while in Fitzroy or Brunswick, you know, just to show off. Yeah, no, no. So, so <laughs> just so you got the biggest house in the street. And then yeah, no, no, because you know, like, uh, yeah, so I did the I did the house in both those suburbs, and you know, bought the fancy cars and all the fancy furniture, all that kind of stuff. But after I, you know, you know, ticked those boxes, and I think I call that period the white picket fence period. Especially when I was living in Brighton, I was losing my mind. It was mm. just really boring. Yeah. Um, and having lived in, I lived in the city before living in the city was cool. So I was living in Flinders Lane and and Rockman's Regency uh, for a decade, and then I moved to Brighton, and and it Couldn't was. Two different places. It Could was, you, you no. start waving at your neighbours and mowing the front lawn and washing the car on a Sunday? I did. I Beautiful. Did. Yeah, yeah. And then I got miserable. Uh, and then I started, you ready for this? I started cycling. And that's <laughs> oh, when you was all you're over. In. You're I was, in. It was all over, yeah. So, uh, and, and cycling, uh, not to get to work, cycling in Lycra, yeah. of course, yeah. So, um, so that was that was probably, I think if you've got the personality profile that people like me have, you need to keep uh, it active and the moment it gets inactive, you start to wander and do yeah. and do things that you, you know, shouldn't do. Look, I, 
I, uh, my ex-wife, and my ex-wife lives next door to me. Mm. We're, we're good friends um, and we you know, go on family holidays and have <clears throat> dinner once a month and that kind of thing. And she's a beautiful person and a beautiful woman. She, um, uh, you know, uh, we, our divorce was great. You know, I mean, as far as divorces go, we did this thing called nesting. Right. Um, we uh, lived in the same house for five years and the, her and I would move in and out and the children would stay put. Um, that was hard on us, but good for them good and we've got custody 50-50 and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when that happened, um, it was a very sad time. And and it was me who who left, you know, uh, but it was still not a awesome thing to do. And I went from, you know, barely being home to having custody four days a week of three small children who didn't work for me. So when I cooked them dinner and they didn't eat it, I'd be furious and trying to understand what I'd done wrong to the whatever that I cooked that they weren't going to eat. And so it was a, it was a life changer. I remember the first week that I was on my own as a single parent, um, I'd, you know, spent a couple of hours slaving trying to make some delicious food. And, then, you know, we had to argue about whether they would eat the food, not eat the food. And then I went to my bedroom and poured myself a whiskey and I sat up and I was about to have a, my first sip and my youngest kid, who was two, came and knocked on my door and had, had an asthma attack and collapsed on the ground. So then I was in an ambulance ringing my ex-wife saying, you're not going to believe this, you know, week one, day two. Um, we're in an ambulance going to the Royal Children and it was just horrific. So it was a pretty bad time. Yeah. So I wake up every morning now grateful and thankful for the way shit's worked out. Yeah. And you're almost getting a little bit emotional thinking about it. I am, that. I am. It was just a shit time. But that's okay. And the, yeah. and the light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, when, when things have changed and you've gone, you know what, I've changed for the better because of all this? So I think what, I think what's changed fundamentally for me is uh, uh, I was probably a short-termist. I was always a short play and, you know, always looking for, um, you know, adrenaline and that kind of stuff. And now it's the long play. So I always take a day or two before I respond to an email, a week or two before I respond to a contract or an offer, and I tend to think about what will this mean for me in 10 years or two years or five years or 20 years. And and those, and that thinking, that paradigm shift informs my day-to-day decisions. So I haven't had a demerit point loss in 10 years, whereas 10 years ago I'd lost my license um, because I just won't breach the road rules because I don't want to lose my license. Mm. And that is that comes through wisdom and pain, I guess, as a metaphor for the rest of my life. Yeah. Is it in, the interesting lessons, but it's also part of getting older as well. That experience and well, age, I, I'd the like wisdom, to think the, so. Although I have friends my age who haven't changed still, at all, still yeah, behaving yeah, the same still way, still behaving poorly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I ask you then? So priorities have changed mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. to the person that we see sitting in front of us now. So what are the the long game? What else in your life is is a priority? What are, what other things are important that you hang your hat on and go that won't change? Uh, okay, so. Um, I'm, I feel blessed and privileged to have carved out, uh, time for myself because I don't, you know, uh, have to clock in or clock out. So I've got time and I value that I've always valued thinking time. I I think I like to think of myself as a thinking man. Um, and I like to, uh, continue the uh, process of learning and studying and being creative. So I'm even more committed to the idea of wellness um, and learning. And and the 
people often say this is a throwaway line, but, you know, um, family. Uh, but for me, it's it's easy to say that, but it's quite a different thing to invest in them, you know, uh, continuously on a day-by-day basis. And so that's my priority really in trying to play the long game for all of us uh, and keeping an eye on all the moving parts with younger um, 16-year-old children and that kind of thing. <laughs> for me personally, it's, I guess... I'm probably a bit young to say this, but it's a legacy play. I want to go out um, having done the right thing and, um, and you know, repented and repaid for my sins, uh, whatever they were. And, and so for me now it's um, – uh, but I say this with the privilege of not needing money like I used to, right? And that's the thing. That's the thing that I want to be clear on because um, it's always – you know, there are some uh, uh, naysayers or haters who will say, well, you can afford to do that. Mm. And and it's true. You need, uh, I've carved out the privilege, but yeah. the privilege isn't, um, mar- you know, that expression that uh, money loses its marginal utility at some point. And for me, it was a lower point than most people. The boiling mm. point for me was, you know, to use an oil analogy was much lower. I was probably olive oil rather than <laughs> canola oil. But, uh, you know, I, I see people um, playing the money game and they don't seem very happy to me. Uh, and I, I think you need to understand that. So once you've got the Maslow's uh, triangle, uh, of, triangle of good things, yeah. you need to focus on the more important things. So yeah. uh, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's a there's a pleasure in not worrying about money. Mm-hmm. But I think in business too, maybe not, but I, I've always had this mindset because it's come close a few times is that it can go away and so you never take it for advantage because you can never foresee uh, all outcomes. So, so Gary, I reckon that's a wise advice and what I've always said from day dot, and remember I've been, I guess, an entrepreneur or, you know, uh, on the earn, on the hustle since I was 19 or mm. something, so forever, and before that I've got some stories <laughs> that I won't share in this podcast, but... Um, um, and I always had the view that you're only as good as your last week um, or your last year or your last period. Mm. So you've got to enjoy it and, and, and you've got to smell the roses along the way. So I remember when I sold my first business at 21 years old, I, you know, went overseas for three months and probably blew more money than I'd, than I'd blow on a holiday now. Um, and I remember my thinking was, well, it's here today. It may not be there tomorrow. And so I've always said you value early as good as last week. So, but that is, that is, so that is true. And I, and I live like that today as well. Like I make sure that we have, um, you know, what I, what's important to me, which is travel every year. Um, but I'm saying something different to that. I think if I'd lost everything when I was 30, I would have not recovered emotionally mm. or struggled to recover emotionally. But now it's different. Now, yeah. now I'm building sort of an emotional foundation, I think. And I think the emotional foundation is way more important than a wealth yeah. foundation. Yeah. You're an ambitious guy. What sacrifices have you had to make along the way? Oh, Gary, look, you know, the thing is um, people often refer – or people often talk to talk about my life as if – um, I've achieved some incredible things, right? I don't necessarily think of it that way. And I, I'll tell you what I mean. I think anyone committed to their craft, stay with me here. I mean, mine happens to be entrepreneurialism via the platform of food and beverage and drilling down further coffee. Uh, and there's a creative outlet that I need, otherwise I won't survive. So I need to produce and create and make, otherwise I get sad. And so therefore 
people understand me or pigeonhole me or box me up into, um, you know, an, an entrepreneur, a hospital entrepreneur. But I think if you're a, um, you know, level 11, is it violinist or pianist or um, you swim for Australia or you ski for Australia or you, you know, Roger Federer or, or you, you know, are a dedicated chef after Michelin stars or hats or any, any anything you do, and anybody who's really successful has given up a shitload of other stuff to get it. Um, and and you can think of it as a sacrifice, and, and in some ways it is. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak more specifically about mine, but I, what I mean is if you want to play tennis and win Grand Slams, you train 50 hours a week. And if you're training 50 hours a week, you're not partying and hanging out with your friends, right? That's the mm. sacrifice. Yeah. And so, um, and I, I wanted to set up that way slowly because as an entrepreneur, um, often the way entrepreneurs are painted in this country or, or written up about, um, they talk about, you know, creating wealth and success, but the, and I don't think of it necessarily as a sacrifice because it's what I wanted to do, but I don't think it's taken me 47 years, maybe 45 years to go away on a holiday and not check my phone, right? Mm. Um, so when you're, uh, you know, driven the way that I am or ambitious is the word you used, you have to learn how to be present in the now and not um, be, uh, you know, and I... I, I, if I'm drilling down further and getting more personal, I had my first anxiety attack at 33, which at 33 I didn't know was an anxiety attack. I thought it was a fucking heart attack. Mm. Um, and and then I, you know, went into therapy and learned about myself, and that stuff plays out, right? So you're built up that way. You're intense. You're, um, you know, you can't take your, uh, you know, my peripheral vision's excellent. So um, I, you know, and that that's my the physical manifestation of how my mind works. Like I am the guy that does five or six things at once. I can't watch a TV series without also texting, Instagramming, writing an essay, right? Whereas I have friends who can sit in front of HBO series and watch it. I can't, even your fantastic show, I've had to text through it and you know, send emails. So the sacrifice is, um, and what I've had to learn how to do is how to get present and not miss the moments. That never ends. If you've got a brain like that, that's, no, no, it's, it's, a, it's a constant striving for that, putting yourself back in. Because are you easily distracted? You move on from... No, it, it's 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 it's... The double-edged sword that that trait it's like a curse and it's and it's and it's a blessing because it means you know at a very young age I had done I mean if you I'm not even talking about meteoric, meteoric rise the word you used was great mm. I'm I'm just saying to do a law degree at Melbourne and open 15 venues while you're a law school um, however you cut that up it's a lot yeah um, it's an incredible achievement. Well, that more than most achieve in a lifetime. Yeah, by the way. but I'm just saying you need, you need to have my mind to pack that in because how do you focus otherwise? I mean, mm -hmm. how can you go from doing a contracts law exam for three and a half hours and then looking at some financials for the last you know financial mm -hmm. year or something? So that's the skill. the 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 curse is that um, it's like if you don't have constant stimulation, yeah, you get bored, and if you get bored, you get miserable. So I've I've um, had to learn how to meditate. I've got to train. Uh, I mean, I travel every eight weeks. Some of it I need to, some of it I don't really need to, but, you know, fuck it, let's go to New York for a week, that kind of thing. But it's been a process of unlearning and relearning and getting to know myself. And that's why I say to you, the long play, 
yeah. is consistent with um, my life's work of trying to yeah. be kind of calm. Yeah. In a calm. So, so when you've not been calm, mm. let's ask this question. When you've not been calm, when you've been busy and you're on multiple things, and obviously we've talked about some of them, how, how it, in what other ways does that manifest itself? Does it, does it pop up in business, for example? Not on a personal level, does it so, pop up in your workplace? Does it affect things that yeah, so you my, never my, want it to affect? My therapist used to say to me, <clears throat> Salvatore, if you're searching for inner calm, then you've got to stop cooking up a fresh batch of guilt on a weekly basis. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, fuck off, Jacinta. Um, easier said than done, you know. Um, and the way that it manifests is you might, uh, in business, you might have a fictitious, sorry, not fictitious, it's real, a white rabbit uh, that you're chasing, but it's fictitious in so much as a white rabbit doesn't even know you exist. But to you, fuck them. I'm going yeah. after that white rabbit. So, yeah. And that may mean you make some bad decisions yep. um, because you're chasing the rabbit rather than having a strategic long-term plan. It may be that you you know, get on it too much and you lose your license or you um, um, worse, and this has never happened to me, but you, you know, um, pass out and don't remember. Mm. It may be that you lose your temper and shed your true feelings about someone at work. Not a good thing, mm. um, you know. And so I think, you know, these days, you know, I've carved out a scenario where I have um, l not many reports. I've only got five reports. And even with those reports, I've got a, you know, always a third person in the room making notes to keep it real for me. Um, and there's agendas and they're handed out before the meetings and there's no ambushing. And if I, um, you know, have some thoughts that I think may not be welcomed, um, especially in, in the way they're delivered, I meditate through them and hold them and, and yeah. don't. I think... I think they've got strategies that right. you've put in place over time to yeah, and I think that I, th I mean, in the creative, we've got a creative studio as part of our business. There's five people who work in that business, and creative creatives are very, very emotional people because mm. the work, the output, correct, connected to them. So you know, sometimes they show me some work, and I want I want to say that's just shit, and I can't tell you why it's shit, but it's just shit, um, and I can't, I, I don't say that anymore. I say, well, it's just not how I would have approached it. Um, I think we need to rework this and rework that. Um, but uh, in some ways that saddens me a little bit because um, it takes a long time sometimes to get what I want as a result because I've got to sort of navigate. Yeah. Um, but it's the new incarnation you see, Gary. That's, I think that's good. I like it. You like it? But then, you know, if you, you know, you take those creative people, if you knock them down and you tell them exactly what you think, they'll never get back up because creatives, you know, are emotional. They are. So there you go. It makes you a better businessman, better person. Hopefully. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't, I personally, I always describe myself as the busiest lazy person I know. Like I just want to be lazy, but I've been wanting to be lazy for about uh, 25 years now and I haven't stopped yet. So there are points in your life, I think, where you can, um, you can make changes. And I look at that, you know, things like, I, I, I refer to a little book, it's called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Probably got that about 15 years ago. And I'm not a religious person. I don't even think I'm a very spiritual person. But some of the lessons in that book for me mean a lot. And most of it is to do with just slowing down and calming the mind. 
and yeah. putting things back into perspective and thanking the people around you. Correct. I know it sounds all a bit wishy-washy, no, but you true. forget in your busyness to do all that stuff. No, I mean, I've I only, you know, I've only, like I said, I met you once before, but I've only met you probably today and, and you have a calm aura. Uh, now, I don't know whether you're a good actor or whether it's genuine, but you have a very calm aura. I think it goes from calm to the opposite. I, I have big peaks and troughs, so I can be very angry. My dad was the most patient man. He still is the most patient man I know. Never gets angry. And I try and be like, I, I, I admire that greatly. I admire that calmness. You know, he would say exactly the same things that Napoleon Bonaparte would never write any letter in anger, pop it in the drawer, leave it in there for three days. He's that kind of guy. Whereas I, I try, but then it builds up and then it pops. Yeah, well, that's that's. So just, I have to let out the fizz gently. Yeah, well, that's a, that's we're talking we're, talk, we're talking about the same demons, I think, and I, I think if we're talking about the same demons, you know, that's why um, you know I think your mate George has discovered Johnny Pollard and meditation, yeah. and yeah. you know, other people go on marathon runs, and other yeah. people resort to wine or whatever. You need to, for me, I, I train five days a week because if I don't. I mean, so one of the sacrifices that happened with me is I, I've my weight has been as low as sixty nine and as high as ninety three, mm. um, and I'm currently sitting at a very proud seventy eight. So, um, <laughs> because you know you're, you're so involved, you get involved, you don't do anything else. So I consciously, and I got to tell you, I, I don't like training all that much. You know, like I'm not saying, you know, some people love running. Mm. I run. I don't love it. I feel good afterwards, but I do it because I need the vents um, and the, you know, as you said, you've got to release somewhere. So, and I think, I think we all have demons that we're all trying to kill on a day by day basis, mm. but I think you're enlightened or you're on your way to enlightenment once you realize you have the demons mm. and once you start dealing with them and you're going to have demons forever. But I think a lot of people go through life not realizing yeah. they have demons and they can't explain their behavior. In fact, just yesterday, a friend of mine told me he's a, a car salesman and he sold someone a car, a luxury car, and it didn't go so well. Um, and this guy got frustrated and took the car to the dealership and lit it on fire. And as he told me the story, I thought, what was going on in that guy's mind? Mm. To make that a reasonable To make that a reasonable, a reasonable course of action, right? And I, I don't and I can and I think all of us have it in us to do some very, yeah. very unreasonable things if we're constrained in like and if you put people I mean I always think I think about prison, right? I don't think I'd survive very well. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of uh, being in small spaces. Mm. I mean, I don't like lifts, so let alone a cell. But I reckon what you'd have to climatize, and once you climatize, you come back out and you desensitize a whole bunch of stuff. Mm. So I think if you if you don't if you're not conscious and aware of your demons, you can find yourself burning a car in a luxury car lot. Yeah, um, and you don't want to be doing that. Let's hope it never happens to us. <laughs> what I have to ask you is that at the point, and we've talked about Saint Ali and artisanal and, you know, a place of, a uh, sense of place and all the rest of it is that, was there a point when you said, I'm going to do that? And then when you actually did it, it meant something different. It's a, it's a, you can have an idea. So at this moment you had an idea, you know, you know what I'm going to do? This is going to be sustainable. It's going to be of a place and I'm going to benchmark that and I'm going to be, I'm going to drive this. But then when you actually made the jump and you did it, you traveled to the, that coffee plantation that it, that it, became something else. I'm uh, lucky, I guess, in that my... I'll tell you my coffee story, the plantation story, Gary, I think the one yeah, you're asking that's me. Yeah, that's... Because I, I I told you earlier on that I was, you know, I'd opened 15 cafes at universities and I was doing high-volume coffee, but I wasn't really truly understanding 
the specialty, the speciality, specialty third wave, micro-rest, whatever you want to call it, the movement. I didn't really realize I was riding that wave. I, I, what I did know, though, was that I loved coffee. I loved coffee forever from four or five years old. Um, I loved what it did to me, where it transported me. And then when I got a sniff of this sort of Providence game, I was like, hmm, well, that's interesting. Oh, fuck it, I want to go to a farm, right? Mm. I'm, I'm going to go to a farm. And and I, I, honestly, I, I, my first farm visit um, was unplanned. It was uncharted waters. And, and in, in hindsight, this is true, and it's embarrassing. I was in a farm in Honduras on a donkey in a Raf Simmons suit because I didn't even connect the farm to wearing Wellingtons. And I just got in my suit that I was wearing in Melbourne that I'd worn at the Spring Racing Carnival, jumped on a plane. And I, and my first meeting was at, uh, it was in Panama. It was uh, with a, a guy called Francisco whose farm is called Don Pachi, the Don Pachi estate. Um, I knocked on his door. He welcomed me with open arms. We ate pork belly and drank tequila together. And he said, I like you. And I was speaking a bit of Spanish. He said, he said where are you going to go next? I said, oh, I'm going to go to Honduras. He goes, oh, let me, let me hook you up with a friend of mine. I said, okay, great. And so um, he made a few phone calls. I landed in Honduras. I'm not sure if you've ever been to Honduras. No. It's a rough place, right? Mm. So it's, it's, there's more guns than people. It is a genuinely rough place. Rough today. You know, it's rough. Mm. And rough and scary and kidnapping and stuff. I'm in a Raf Simmons suit, um, you know, my head up my ass. I land at this airport and there's a motorcade who've come to pick me up, right? And I was like, what is going on? And there's this guy who was, you know, trained at Oxford or or Harvard and spoke mm. fluent English. And and next thing, when the, I'm in the back of a, a four-wheel drive, I think a Mitsubishi, and there was an AK-47 in the back seat and a guy in the back seat. And we went to the presidential palace and I sat with the vice president of Honduras. He said, welcome to my country. And I'm like, well, thanks for having me. And I'm thinking, what's just happened? And he said, apparently you're a friend of Carmen's. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, who's Carmen? Oh, that must have been the girl that Francesco rang and Carmen um, and he says I think me and you are me and you are of the same cloth my friend and uh, as it turned out Carmen was the girl that he was having an affair with right right so the next thing I'm at um, Carmen's farm and uh, um, and no reception so no no bars on my phone um, Carmen didn't speak any English she'd brought a friend of hers from Brooklyn um, who, who who spoke some Eng- spoke English and we were you know, um, having some fun, and um, she then proceeded to tell me that her ex-husband was the largest narco dealer in Honduras who'd killed her father. And I was like, cool, yeah, right. So anyway, I went to sleep that I'm night. here for the coffee. I'm here for the coffee. <laughs> I went to sleep that night, and I was sleeping in her bed, not, not with her, in her bed room, and I looked to my right, and there was this oil painting of her and her dog, which was like six foot with gilded Versace frames, and on the other side was some other, some other ridiculous mirror gilded. And I thought, what am I doing? What, the f- what am I doing? Anyway, so I went to sleep, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, the dogs went crazy, and there was like a loud bang and that kind of stuff, and I thought I was going to be kidnapped and killed. But my point of the story was I went to Origin, not like some of my contemporaries who knew what they were doing. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to go and have a look. Mm. And so when I went to Origin, and, that, and that's sort of one of the cooler, crazier stories, but what, what I went to Origin, and I tasted coffee cherries off a tree. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a fruit. Of course it is. Wow, and this t- cherry tastes different. This cherry and that, t- and so for me that that was my epiphany, and that was my epiphanal moment where I thought, mm. okay, everything I've read, and everything I've yeah, it's true. And then there's 
and then there's the you know the, the cartels the stuff that come with some of those coffee origins however fast forward 15 years I think that coffee visits now are a little bit kind of you know going to Kenya for a safari kind mm. of thing back in back in my day and before my time with people like Jeff Watts who founded Intelligentsia it was genuinely you know treacherous waters to to navigate I think now it's a bit more sort of user friendly and you know, there's a lot yeah. more nicer things to do but not that it's I'm passing judgment I'm just saying it's different yeah. and that's that's sort of where it started what's the future hold well if you believe um you know you know the concept of peak oil there's a, there's a <laughs> there is a, a strong school of thought in coffee that we're um we're about to have uh, peak coffee. Um, I he heard it first here on Gary's show, um, and they reckon by 2026 there'll be very very little coffee around. So coffee's going to go. I believe that. I, I don't know that we'll run out of coffee, but I think I think that farmers have given up on growing coffee because they're you know not making any money out of it, and it's, they make more money out of growing alternate crops or cocaine. You know, um, and so that and you know, um, despite the global warming uh, skeptics, I mean, it's it's happening. There are, you know, so coffee is going to get less. Um, when, when I started out at the Cup of Excellence program, which was, um, you know, co- coffees that were being auctioned, um, and I I can't remember the prices anymore, Gary, but I think we'd pay 300 bucks a kilo for some, you know, A grade or B grade, you know, Panama and Geisha. And I've heard those prices have reached $2,000 now because, you know, we've got the Russians and the Chinese and the Indians all getting involved in the high-end luxury coffee game. So um, I think so what I'm getting at is, uh, and and we've done some consulting work through our R&D arm for a, a Swiss-based company that's looking to create the mouthfeel and flavor profile of coffee, but it ain't coffee. So um, there is some paranoia about so so long long term. I think we need to consider whether there's going to be enough coffee around for the demand, and coffee's increasing every year. And in the short term, I think um, baristas will become more like sommeliers and and uh, and less um, hands on. So, for example, at Sonali at the moment, we've got um, a, a seller program for want of a better word, where we've got over 50 varietals that are roasted and frozen and they're in single-serve portions. So we bring them out, grind them for portions so you can taste, you know, coffees from all around the world all the time and that requires knowledge, right? Um, and so the fourth wave, I'm going to call it, will probably be automation um, and we're all the sort of things and it's happen and happening already. So, for example, in, in cafes of repute, very little do you see Bruce are tamping the coffee. There's a... Uh, tamping automatic machine by the side of the coffee and, and the one we use is it's called puck press and it, and it presses to the right you know um, bar pressure whatever it's called um, and things you'll see milk jugglers you know those milk frothing things and and the, so if you if you cut out the um, mechanics of a repetitive yeah. task but increase the knowledge of the Bruce's the Bruce very much becomes like a sommelier and uh, and starts to understand your profile needs and makes coffee according to your profile that's so operation, I think that's what's going to happen. And on the large umbrella, we've got the issue of peak coffee. So much to know about coffee. And now I need a coffee because we've been in here I for need a, a good, wine. A good hour. No, I'll be, I'll be happy with the coffee. Salvatore Malatesta, thank you so much. That's fascinating. I reckon we could go on for much longer than this because I'm, I love my coffee. But we didn't really talk a lot about coffee. We learned a lot about you. And that's a nice thing to do. Oh, thanks, Gary. Cheers. Cheers. My tips and tricks. 
I have a couple of little cheeky desserts that I make quickly when I don't really have a lot at home. And one of them is an affogato. If you don't know it, it's a ball of vanilla ice cream into a glass with a shot of espresso over. And if you're feeling naughty, a little shot of Francelico, which is a hazelnut liqueur. Absolutely delicious. The other one that I make is a dry caramel. So pan on, high gas, sprinkle in some sugar, watch it. And as it starts to melt, then you can begin to stir it once or twice as it starts to darken and you'll get a caramel in the pan. Take it off the heat, hit it with a shot of coffee, stay away because it steams a lot, stir it and reduce it a little and you get the most delicious espresso caramel that you can pour over the very same ice cream. I teach you some bad things on this show, don't I? A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski. Audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. <laughs> <laughs>